Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Travis Decker from Eglin Air Force Base. Today, I'll be talking to a friend and true mentor of mine, Dr. John Kelly. He's known for his quick wit, his generosity, his passion, and of course, the zingers he can administer from the podium. In addition, he's a world-renowned surgeon, speaker, comedian, teacher, husband, father, and most inspirationally, a man of faith. He not only teaches the finer techniques of surgical practice and patient care, but truly cares for the lives he touches as a mentor. In addition, he's an active member in the Academy, the American Orthopedic Society of Sports Medicine, the Arthroscopy Association of North America, and is a staunch supporter of the Society of Military Orthopedic Surgeons. He's currently a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, continuing to mentor residents, fellows, and medical students on the art of medicine, self-love, and faith. Once again, I'll be focusing on classic articles within arthroscopy with a particular interest in advancement of surgical techniques and the lessons learned over the years. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kelly, as I'm very excited to hear about a procedure you are passionate about and how your approach to shoulder instability has morphed over time on how you utilize arthroscopic remplissage to obtain reliable outcomes in difficult shoulder instability patients. We will be reviewing your September 2011 arthroscopy article entitled Arthroscopic Remplissage with Bank Cart Repair for the Treatment of Glenohumeral Instability with Hill-Sachs Defects. Dr. Kelly, congratulations on all of your achievements, and I'm truly humbled to have you on the podcast. Well, Travis, it's a pleasure of mine. Uh, you're a fine young man, and you're going to do many, many, many good things. And if I can help to just one surgeon in the audience, and it's certainly worth my time, son. Well, Dr. Kelly, can you first begin by discussing a little bit on your journey in uh, in arthroscopic shoulder instability procedures and how you came to adopt arthroscopic remplissage into your armamentarium? That's a great question, Travis. You know, we had a wonderful resident named Robert Purchase who did a fellowship with Eugene Wolf, and he wrote a great article, a landmark article on remplissage, and how it was a, a sort of innovative way to treat hillsides lesions um, in the humeral head. And I got to know Rob. And I asked him, you know, personally and candidly, you know, what's the deal on this? Does it work? And uh, I got to know Eugene Wolf, and they both were very, very excited about the results that they attained with this. So um, I started doing it uh, shortly after the article was published, and um, the results I had were almost, uh, you know, too good to be true. So I said, this is good stuff. And in an effort to sort of promote this to other surgeons, uh, I had a very enlightened residents that were saw how many of these I was doing. And they, and they, they decided to start writing up the results and look at things like imaging studies and so forth. So it was all very, very uh, encouraging to me. And I want to make one disclosure. I got no agenda here. I just want to promote something that works in my hands and in others. And I've learned a great deal on, on how to do it, how to do it best, how you know, when you're really pushing the envelope and so forth. So it's exciting for me because I think Remplissage is here to stay. And the more we can refine the technique, the more precisely we can choose the indications, the more we can help our patients. In the article, you mentioned that your indications at the time is being for patients with no true glenoid bone loss and primarily humeral head-based pathology. Is this still your primary indicator for performing a Remplissage? And do you no. utilize the newer information that we have in terms of that on-track, off-track concept to help determine when to utilize remplissages? I've started to utilize the combine the articles that you've discussed with on-track, off-track, and now newer concept of near-track as a possible utility of remplissage. And maybe that's 
making things too academic and being less practical, uh, you have much more experience on your hands that you could probably speak to. Well, you know, truth is sacred and uh, everybody has to look at uh, themselves and say, how do I see the world? I was an English major. I'm kind of like a visual arts kind of guy. I used to do art when I was younger. And I'm not one of these uh, engineering types that looks at all these numbers and metrics and uh, more of a simplistic old country doc at heart. And I look at them, you know, my mentor, Howard Steele, would say, you know, we get bone scans, CAT scans, MRI scans. I'm a man scan. I use the examination a lot, uh, Travis. And if someone has significant apprehension, the lower degrees of abduction, and I know they really have pushing limits with my remplissage. If they have apprehension and abduction, exhortation, uh, in 90, then I said, yeah, I probably can help them. So I use examination. I have expanded the indications because, <laughs> truthfully, in many cases, they get me over and like, oh, my goodness, there's more glenoid bone loss. I did not consent this person for letter J. Let's see what happens. And it's those subset of patients that taught me a lot. And they come back in the office and they say, hey, doc, let's look at the other shoulder now. Uh, I, I, rec I recognized what Eugene Wolf told me years ago, when the anterior glenoid bone loss approaches the bare spot, then it's hands off. And that's a very rough estimate, grossly. And Ian Lowe said to get an inverted perineum about 30% bone loss. So I use it up to 30% bone loss because the simple reason that many, many patients do quite well, and we know that the coracoid graft may be insufficient others, and to do just a lateral J without a rimple size, uh, and even P Peter Mullet-Hands, who's a wonderful surgeon, and he had about a 23% subluxation rate with the coracoid transfer because the health sacs is not recognized. So putting all together, I look at the glenoid tract concept, but I do rely more on my physical examination and I look at the, the glenoid grossly. And if that bone loss is really coming to the bare spot, which is about 40%, and I say, eh. Uh, but I have started doing some glenoid bone grafting the last two, three years, and I'm working on a product. I know that the, the work of guy has been very enlightening me how anti-glenoid bone grafting uh, can hypertrophy with stress. So I take a little seed graft, a little dowel with like a sort of a coring reamer, like an oats type mosaoplasty, a core hole before my replissage. And I place that sometimes with a suture under the labrum, seed grafting, repair the retention. And I have some early data so I do that bone may hypertrophy. So I, I, my hope and prayer is to sort of replace uh, laturgia, which is a wonderful operation, by the way. But it's fraught with complications. Let's be honest, it, it's a big hit. And if you don't do it exactly right, your risk of arthritis can be excessive. Um, there's a minimal subscap morbidity, but I do think it's not really physiologic because of all the major hit it does. And people would challenge you, say, hey, what do you think putting an infosmaeus in the health facts is physiologic? Not really. However, uh, we have some early data saying that some of that infospinatus may sort of transform it, uh, metaplasia, whatever you want to call it, into maybe fiber cartilage. So <clears throat> I think that's much more of a biologic and a kinder, gentler solution to the LSAX lesion and to the engaging LSAX than a ladder J. Yes, sir. It's uh, It's been interesting to see how I've adopted it in my practice early. I've seen a lot of different technical aspects on how to perform a remplissage and reading your article between one anchor, two anchors, knotted anchors. Now we have knotless technology. We have solid anchors versus all suture anchors. Can you walk us through how you performed your remplissage technique and how you've refined your technique in, in 2021? Yeah, well, I've learned the hard way, and you have to be honest with yourself, um, you know, what it works, what doesn't. Uh, I've been gifted with many, many uh, 
incredibly talented uh, residents and, um, and students. And a fellow named Grant Garcia was one of our uh, students at Penn. He went on to HSS and did this wonderful study looking at the safe zone for retrieval of anchors. Um, so that num number one, I'll go through the steps I've learned. And Steven Snyder, some of my, my mentors who taught me these, prepare the bed very carefully. And I'll do a little microfracture and I'll take a curette, get bleeding bone surfaces. I don't go crazy with anchors. I don't think you need more than two anchors uh, most of the time. I don't need, I don't think you need all these sutures. Um, so I look from an anterior uh, lateral portal from the front. Sometimes a 70 scope will be really helpful. And when I do the oats plug, it, it actually recesses the inversus even deeper, which is a double bonus. But I usually put the, the distal anchor in first, and then I'll retrieve blindly, as Eugene Wolf taught me. I don't do knotless too, because I'm concerned about, you know, these, well, I've had bad success. I break the anchors a lot. And um, I, I'm, I'm concerned about maybe ischemic changes that's overly tightened, if you will. So I just retrieve with like a penetrating de device from a seven o'clock portal, which is, in Grant Garcia's paper, uh, the safe zone. So you want to be more distal and lateral in your retrieval. But before, we just do sort of a musculodesis. And now we know that uh, that can restrict motion, rotational motion more. And by going more lateral, you have less restriction effect. And you get more tenderness tissue. So I do tend to retrieve laterally. And I'll retrieve distally. And then I'll tie after both limbs are retrieved. So I retrieve distally, then retrieve proximally, and I tie blindly. Uh, and that has served well with me. I don't uh, necessarily tie in subacromial space. Again, I've not had great success with knotless anchors. I don't condemn them necessarily, but uh, I've broken several. <laughs> I just, I wonder whether it makes it maybe uh, too tight and um, we can create some ischemic changes in the, in the tendon. And that has worked well for me. So preparation is key. Placement through a standard poster portal and retrieval through a safe zone portal, which is very, very lateral and, and sort of distal away from the joint. Yes, sir. And uh, the the next thing everybody likes to know is, well, what are the results? And one thing that was astounding in your studies is that you had extremely low rates of recurrence, but also importantly, the lack of rotation deficits that we have come to fear, as you just said, and the musculodesis when, when performing a remplissage. So with no one more experienced than you in performing this procedure, you said just a minute ago that you that no one's been more critical of oneself than you have. Have you seen any other possible ramifications in patients that you have performed remplissage? And what have you done to mitigate those risks, um, as well as the rotational deficits that that we are all concerned about? Well, Travis, I'm happy to say I'm a space Catholic, so I have a double major in guilt, and uh, I, I'm sort of inhibited from lying. I'm worried about the nuns yardstick hit in my head if I tell a fib. So I'm, I'm truthfully, I can think maybe one patient in 30, well, I'm doing this for 20 plus years, maybe one patient with a little bit of stiffness, I just haven't seen it. What I have seen, and this is how I've become more critical, is a incomplete healing. I've had a couple that I have had recurrences and I've gone in again and, and I was not happy with the healing. So I'm, I'm more fastidious and compulsive, you know, with the preparation of the bone bed. And I do think uh, with this core reaming that I've been doing with the glenoid, it recesses the remplissage even further. And I know you have a question coming up about the rehab, but I, I go gently and slowly with these patients. I hold them for generally five weeks, and I restrict extra rotation strengthening for about eight weeks. So those two things have really helped me. But I can honestly say, you know, again, no agendas here. Motion has not been a problem. It has not been a 
whether it just remodels, whether it just stretches out, I, I don't know, but it has not been a problem. And the added bonus from Passage, again, you know, if it's too good to be true, it's not. It's not the end-all, be-all. It's a wonderful adjunct, is that uh, technically I do it first because it pulls the humor ahead posteriorly, and it allows me to do my bank art in much easier fashion. In fact, uh, another colleague, uh, Jeff Abrams, taught me sometimes you can leave the sutures long in your massage and don't tie them and just pull the head back if you really need access in some of those uh, difficult to access shoulders. So it, by doing it first, uh, number one, it helps uh, the access to the anterior labrum. And number two, I had one case where I actually did it second and as I pulled the head back, I lost some laxity because of the circle concept of the humor of the of the capsule. I had to go in and redo my banker because I had lost laxity. So now I always do it first. And that's what Eugene Wolf taught me probably over 20 years ago. Well, sir, I, I think anybody that knows you and, and truly knows who you are, there, there really isn't an agenda outside of trying to help not only patients do better, but surgeons do their best. And as you've seen excellent results in your uh, practice with the use of arthroscopic uh, bank cart and um, adjunct remplissage, do you have any other additional pearls in terms of uh, surgical technique of portal placement? You had a great one right there discussing exactly um, the, the sequence and the order, but also in general, just an approach to shoulder instability, maybe discussing a little bit about how you you're very critical of your physical exam uh, using the man scan uh, to, to really help dictate your, your treatment options. And then lastly, where exactly are you placing those anchors in the hill sacs? Are you placing them in the center of the defect? Are you placing them on the, the more lateral side of the defect, medial side of the defect? How, where exactly are you placing these? But these are great questions. And, and admittedly, audience, Travis Decker is a lot smarter than, than I am. I mean, his his IQ is higher than my mortgage, but um, I, I I think that the risk of maybe maybe introducing stiffness, I do tend to place the anchors closer to the particular surface because I, the whole goal is to prevent engagement. So I tend to cheat on the more medial aspect of the defect, and so portal placement is I look from an anterior lateral portal, I have to bring the 70 in, and then I'm through a standard posterior portal I'll place. Uh, usually the anchors in, and I may make a percutaneous distal portal for, for the first anchor. That's the beauty of this technique is I place the anchors in through an orthogonal portal, right, straight angle, Greek, I'm trying to throw some Greek in, and I can do it percutaneously. And then I retrieve through that standard 7 o'clock portal, and I'll, I'll take a spinal needle, or needle and just get an idea, you know, lateral safe zone, and then I'll bluntly place a, a 6 millimeter cannula, a supercromo space in the air of my needle. And then I take one of these large, like, retriever devices. I used to use some small, like, uh, suture gear. Now I use, like, this penetrator-type device because it is a – it's robust tissue. But uh, I do tend to put the anchors closer to the surface because, again, the goal is to have an engagement. And um, uh, I will put the distal one first and the proximal second. And I retrieve distally first and then retrieve proximally second. And I do all through one canyon. I just, uh, just make sure you keep the sutures – um, under tension, just like doing an SCR or something like that. It's always suture salad. And then uh, when I, I when I tie the sutures, I have my system pull the humor head posteriorly. It's very important for coaptation of the tissues. So all those things have really helped me. And then when you look in the front of your shoulder, like oh my goodness, yeah, this this humor is reduced. I can actually do my bank right now. So it's a win-win in many respects. But I'm not here to say that uh, you know 
a miraculous cure for every shoulder issue. Because if, if that bone loss is approaching the bare spot, I'm kidding myself. But I have to be frank. There are many cases, again, and this is why I got so excited, where I never consented a patient for a latter day. And I get in there and I'm like, oh, and then the Hail Mary starts flowing. And I say, well, I got to do the best I can. So I'll make sure I get a good bumper, capsulography, amplissage, and now with the glenda bone grafting. I certainly think in, in others, a young girl, uh, Lee in Korea has shown that if you do face-to-face, head up, ladder J versus remplissage, results are absolutely equal in recurrence with a considerably higher complication rate with ladder J. It's like 13% complication rate versus 0% in the remplissage. So it's a kinder, gentler way. It's not the end-all be-all for all patients. And if someone fails my ladder J or my remplissage with Bankart, you know, with a good pumper, then I will do a ladder J. You know, you got to you know, know when to hold them and when to fold them. I, I personally think that there's too many ladder J's done, and I think that we can approach our patients with a kinder, gentler. Yeah, and one last word, Travis. You know, Buddy Sable taught me this years ago, the best bumper in my hands is still with a horizontal mattress. There's a fellow named Hagstrom. Uh, I believe that Buffalo showed that. Knotless is a great technique, but I don't like a any suture exposed to the joint. There's some recent articles, you know, confronting that issue. And number two, you get a higher bumper with a horizontal mattress suture. And, um, you know, the bumper height has been correlated with recurrence. So these are things we forgot about. You know, sometimes industry pushes to use all these implants when good old-fashioned horizontal mattress is still probably the best um, in terms of restoring or, or, or maximizing labor height and ergo preventing recurrence. I, uh, I I really appreciate it. One last technical question that I, I had for you is that we definitely do patient-specific surgical procedures or in the high-impact contact athletes, football players, in the military, special forces operators, uh, paratroopers jumping out of planes. With the patients that you have done remplissaging and the, the, the counterpoint would be, well, some of these folks that are these high impact athletes uh, have a higher risk of recurrence maybe with the remplissage versus that of a ladder J. What, what, what would your response be to that? And would you still in your hands, knowing the results that you've had, still encourage young surgeons like myself to consider doing an arthroscopic bank cart repair with remplissage in some of these tweener cases uh, in these higher end impact type athletes? Absolutely. A couple of points. Uh, the, the literature, I believe, is flawed because they always compare it to bank heart without remplissage and without adequate bumper restoration. So I do it in all comers. Uh, but if, again, that bone loss approaches the bare spot, then I, you know, no, I'm, I'm not I'm trying to be a hero here, but absolutely yes. And um, there are more recent articles do support that arthroscopic does rival um, open repair. And, and I, I make a disclaimer here. I, I'm not trying to put some pot shots in, but I think there's no role. There's no role for open bank heart in my hands. One time I open a shoulder is through a ladder J. And I don't think it confers any advantage. I can do capsular tucks and manage the capsule much better with an arthroscope than I can open and, and, and forget about the subscapularis, you know, violation. So I, I, I still, and I'm not trying to be a, a cynic, I just don't understand why the open bank card is still uh, promoted. I don't think it confers any advantage other than just increasing score, <laughs> increasing score and increasing morbidity to the patient. So I do it. I do the remplissage and bank heart. In fact, I got a phone call yesterday. One of my 16-year-old contact athletes, his mom called and said his shoulder's going out. I'm like, oh boy, but it was his other shoulder. The one I did the remplissage on, he had about two, maybe 20% bone loss. He's doing quite well. 
So that's an experience I have. And I think that, uh, you know, I think with the proper indications, uh, with the clinoid bone grafting and with the capsular elevation and with the bumper restoration, I think we're going to see fewer and fewer latter days done. And I think for the right reasons. Well, Dr. Kelly, I, I really appreciate uh, It's been a true honor and privilege having you on the podcast today. You're a man of, of wisdom. And so do you have any parting words for those, uh, those young shoulder surgeons, such as myself, as they began a lifelong journey of discovery, as well as what you've taught me, humility when approaching shoulder instability in these in sometimes very difficult cases? Absolutely, Charles. I, I just wrote down three things like this year. Number one is adopt a mentor. I'm just honored to help in your formation because you're such a wonderful person gifted surgeon, and uh, I get great joy in showing you the failure paths that I've done over my 31 year, I, I say 31 uh, extinguished career. Uh, and uh, number two, I think it's important to um, prepare. I think it's so important to prepare. You're a great athlete. You prepare for football games. Uh, I, I prepare the OR. I visualize every case, and I anticipate I operate Tuesdays and Thursdays and Monday nights and Wednesday nights. I'm there preparing. I'm looking at the images. I'm drawing out in the mind. So when I go in the room, bang, it's already done my mind. The first creation is already done. And number three is probably most important of all is be kind to yourself. You know, behind every complication is a gift. Is a gift. You learn things. You learn humility. We also learn, you know, the first one happens, but the second one's on me. And this is where I have to give tribute to the nuns because I start write things down. John, I will not talk in class again 20 times. If I do something, I write it down. And I have a Microsoft Word sheet on every case I do. If I make a mistake, I write it down. So the night before the case, I look at, I try to pull up that file and say, what did I do last time that wasn't so cool? So remember, the first mistake happens. The second one's on you. So it's been my distinct honor. Travis, you're a patriot, Air Force. God-fearing man, wonderful person, family man. It's been my honor to help you in any way I can in the audience. I look forward to doing anything I can to promote the cause of uh, science and uh, truth. So thank you for your time. Dr. Kelly's classic arthroscopy article entitled Arthroscopic Remplissage with Bankart Repair for the Treatment of Glenohumeral Instability with Hillsex Defects was published in September 2011 and can currently be accessed at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you all for joining us and have a great rest of your day. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. 